0: Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have Sebastian Malaby, and I have to tell you, I found this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, we definitely sort of go off into the weeds on uh, some wonky um, history and biography of who Alan Greenspan was and why he had such an outsized uh, influence. If, if you're a Federal Reserve watcher or a uh, econo geek, you will find a lot of this stuff fascinating. And we talked about it extensively. I probably could have spent another hour just on Alan Greenspan, but if I did that, I wouldn't have been able to get to More Money Than God, which is a delightful book on hedge fund managers, highly recommended. Uh, I could babble about this stuff endlessly, but instead of me doing that, Without any further ado, my conversation with Sebastian Mallaby. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Sebastian Malaby. He is an author and the Paul A. Volker Fellow for International e- Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. He has contributed to The Washington Post and The Economist, and he is the author of More Money Than God, Hedge Funds and the Making of the New Elite, that won the 2011 Loeb Prize and was a New York Times bestseller. His most recent book, The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan, Uh, Sebastian Malaby, welcome to Bloomberg. Great to be with you, Barry. So I'm, I'm fascinated by both your process and the topics you cover. Let's start with The Man Who Knew, a title I perhaps might choose to argue with you over, but I can't argue with this quote, this excerpt from the book. No post-war figure has loomed over global finance as imposingly as Alan Greenspan, America's Fed chairman, became Fed chairman the month of the 1987 crash. And no figure has been more paradoxical, a man who preached the virtue of the gold standard, yet came to embody paper money A man who posed as a dry technocrat, yet was political to his core. Let's discuss that.
1: Well, he is a man of paradoxes, and I didn't quite understand before I began writing quite how deep those paradoxes went. But he was a person who had uh, lectured in the 1960s that the creation of the Federal Reserve was an historic disaster. So the man who later embodied the Federal Reserve, personified the central bank, He didn't believe there should be a central bank.
0: Which is is ironic. I always found it fascinating that he was such a Fed chairman interventionist, and yet he very much argued for letting the marketplace work things out themselves. Yes, he'd
1: begun in his earlier life, in his 30s and 40s, as a very determined libertarian. I mean, this idea that there shouldn't be a central bank was because he believed in a gold standard. Why? Because he didn't want the government to be in the business of making money. He thought that that was too much government power. And yet, when he was Fed chairman, of course, not only did he move interest rates around quite a lot to try to micromanage the level of inflation, but also uh, he was willing to intervene when there was a crisis repeatedly and bail things out.
0: Literally, within his first few weeks of joining the Fed, The 1987 crash occurs, down 23% in a single day, lots of panic, and he stepped in and provided liquidity. Really, that set the tone for the rest of his, his career. It did. So, you know, when
1: there was the Mexico crisis uh, in the beginning of 1995, the Fed helped to bail out Mexico. When there was, you know, the East Asian crisis, Greenspan was involved. Long term capital management, the hedge fund goes down in 1998. And the Fed, in my view, that's really where they really go overboard and cut interest rates no fewer than three times to try to stabilize the markets after that hedge fund went down. Then of course, after the NASDAQ bubble burst, you know, another round of super loose policy. So yes, repeated interventions to stabilize finance.
0: And and of most famously, after 9-11, there were fairly radical uh, interest rate cuts. The Greenspan Fed took rates down to levels they really hadn't been on, especially for as long as they were kept there.
1: Right, as I remember, they were down at 1% on the federal funds rate in the summer of 2003 and stuck there for a whole year to 2004.
0: Right. Below 2% for three years at 1% for a single year. And subsequent to that, a number of assets that are priced in either dollars or credit, housing, oil, all the commodities, gold, they all took off.
1: Right. And I think what that points to is the difficulty for the Fed on the one hand of targeting inflation so if you're looking at consumer price inflation, however you measure that, that can be stable while asset prices are not at all stable. They're going crazy. And the central dilemma, which still remains for the Fed and may be quite relevant actually in the next 12 months, is that you can be thinking, okay, I'm doing a good job because inflation is low and stable, but you're not getting a good job because all these asset prices are bubbling away uncontrollably.
0: The thing that stood out to me from another book that takes a similar look was Roger Lowenstein's Origins of the Crash. And he talks about the opportunity the Federal Reserve had after long-term capital management to impose some discipline on market participants and say, hey, we don't wanna engage in moral hazard. You guys mess this up, you figure it out. It's not systemic, it's not threatening, and maybe there's a lesson to be learned there. That that might be asking a little too much of, of the Federal Reserve to think along those lines. But do you agree with that assessment that this intervention, amongst many, helps set the stage for the future crisis?
1: Definitely. I mean, I think that the expression used on Wall Street after the long-term capital management experience was, Uncle Alan will take care of us. <laughs> that is not a good way for traders to be feeling because then they're going to take too much risk. And I think it was really exacerbated, by the way, uh, in the 2004-05 period when the Fed started to do uh, forward guidance. That further exacerbated this feeling that Uncle Alan was there. He was pretty much telling you how quickly interest rates were going to be raised. And therefore, you could take ton of risk. Because you knew you wouldn't be ambushed by
0: a sudden rate hike of 75 basis points. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Sebastian Malaby. He is the author of the highly regarded The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. Uh, The reviews on this book have been wonderful. I've been working my way through it. You spent... So uh, first, I have to talk a little bit about your process. You spent about five years researching and writing this. Is is that right? Yeah,
1: my kids make fun of me that every time I write a book, it seems to take longer than the last one. Uh, and this did take a bit over five years, and it wasn't that was my plan, but it was so fascinating once I got into it. I discovered so much new stuff that people didn't know about this very public figure, and yet there were private things to be discovered. Give us an example. Well, you know, we remember the. Um, sort of besuited, sober, pinstriped mm-hmm. uh, Fed chairman going on about trucking capacity utilization in the Midwest. You don't remember that he was the guy who bought the Buick Electra convertible automobile you know, and drove it so fast up and down Manhattan that, as his girlfriend said, um, you know, it wasn't a moderate pace. <laughs> and he got, he got plenty of speeding tickets. Really, you know, He was not against marriage. He did it twice, but he was single between 27 and 71.
0: You describe him as a ladies' man. is Is that an exaggeration or is that a fair description?
1: Well, he had a succession of remarkably beautiful girlfriends mm-hmm. in this, as he said. You know, there was this little interim between twenty seven and seventy one, <laughs> and in this period, and these are his words, not mine. You know, he dated news anchors, uh, beauty queens, uh, and much in between. So there was quite a
0: list there. That that's quite that's quite fascinating. Look, we were referencing earlier. Um, the forward guidance that the Fed began in 2004. So this was with Greenspan still as Fed chairman, but uh, the new kid in town coming in as vice chairman, Ben Bernanke. And you argue more or less in the book that forward guidance helped set the stage for the financial crisis. So let's talk a, a, a little bit about this. Why was this such a break from past policy and how did it impact... Um, the future crisis
1: well in terms of the difference from past policy if you go back to the 1980s and you look at the big moments in monetary policy they were remarkably untelegraphed so paul volcker in 1982 gave up monetary targets big change in the Mm -hmm. feds policy he didn't even announce it when he did that and then he showed up a bit later at a conference of bankers and said something like um well, we made a little adjustment in how we approach this stuff, but we might go back and we're not sure if we're going to stick with it. I mean, the level of communication
0: was very, very low. It, to the point where people didn't know, the, the Fed wouldn't come out and announce, hey, we raised interest rates. It would show up in, in their actual um, open market activity, not from a, a missive. And, and that all changed Under Greenspan, didn't it?
1: Exactly. So, bit by bit, there was more openness, and the Fed did announce the policy change once it decided it. And then in the 2000s, you get to this period where not only does the Fed announce what it's just decided, it also guides the markets about what it's going to be doing in the future. And that's the crucial change. And to me, what that did to Wall Street was that Wall Street suddenly felt it wouldn't be ambushed by a sudden jump in the short-term interest rate.
0: So this change took normally conservative bond managers and traders and gave them a little more carte blanche to uh, take more risk and and embrace uh, a trade that was fraught with the potential of the Fed suddenly and unexpectedly raising rates.
1: If you compare the 2004 kind of period to 1994, Mm -hmm. when the Fed was in a tightening cycle. And at one point it did 25 basis points, sometimes 50 basis points. There was one meeting where they raised by 75 uh, basis points. That caused what one bond trader at the time called hurricane Greenspan. Mm -hmm. Right? People got blown up if they were leveraged. You know, there was real market discipline being imposed. Market
0: discipline, meaning people weren't leveraging up the carry trades because you never knew when a sudden rate increase would come along.
1: And the guys who were leveraged, like Michael Steinhardt, the hedge fund trader, for example, blew Mm -hmm. up. You know, he was down enormously in 1994, punished by the Fed for taking too much risk. And you've got to do that in markets a bit to, to remind people that it's risky.
0: So removing that potential of the unexpected increase pretty much allowed allowed traders to to embrace more risk, embrace more leverage, get much further out over their skis than they previously had been doing.
1: Yeah, and I think it's worth just trying to encapsulate this for your listeners in the following way, because it's, it's, it's a misunderstanding and a disagreement that persists even today in the debates I have with policymakers. So sometimes there's people say to me, look, if you raise the short-term interest rates, the Fed was raising rates in 2005, mm-hmm. then, you know, the short-term rate is more expensive to borrow, so you're going to have less carry trade. And I say, yeah, but you have to think about the risk-adjusted return, not just the return. If the Sharpe ratio, the risk-adjusted return mm-hmm. on a carry trade improves, then Wall Street will do more.
0: One of the things I, I uh, was aware of and, and you reference, was in the early 90s, when a few days before an FOMC meeting, Greenspan on his own decides to cut rates and the governors went berserk and subsequently removed the ability of the Federal Reserve to act that independently outside of a real emergency. Tell us a little bit about that moment.
1: Well, you know, Greenspan was always known as the imperial Fed chairman. Mm-hmm. He, he massed massive power unto himself. And if you You know, all through this period, he really dominated the system. And in the early period, he had this particular device that you're talking about, where basically they would have a meeting. They wouldn't quite come to a decision about what they should do. And so they would end the meeting saying that the Fed chairman had the authority to move interest rates in between meeting just on his own authority. And Greenspan, of course, liked that because it gave him the power. And he used to do that a lot in the first few years until finally his committee had enough of that and stopped him.
0: I mean, it was just days before a meeting. It seemed like he was snubbing his nose at them, and they weren't happy with it. Let, let's talk about some of the other things. It, ben Bernanke gave you a wonderful—he said it wasn't a review, but it was a write-up of the book. He disagrees with you about Greenspan's role uh, in leading up to the crisis. Um, let's let's discuss that. What, what do you think about the former Fed chairman's discussion of the book?
1: Well, you know, I'm very grateful to Ben Bernanke because he did write a very gracious, long response. He said it's highly recommended, so Mm -hmm. how can I complain? Um, At the same time, we we do have a disagreement, and you're right. Part of the disagreement is about the interpretation of Greenspan's motivation uh, for not raising interest rates more aggressively. I say in my book that some of it had to do with personality, that Greenspan didn't like to confront people directly and aggressively.
0: I'm Barry Ridholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Sebastian Malaby. He is the author of More Money Than God, Hedge Funds, and the Making of the New Elite, as well as most recently, The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. Let's talk a little bit about your writing process. You referenced that it took you five years to write this. Is that the research that's so time consuming? Or is it physically the process of getting words on paper um, and then editing and re-editing that that's so time-consuming?
1: It's mostly the research. I mean, this was a huge project of going to presidential archives and you know going through what the Nixon Library might have about Nixon's involvements with Greenspan, et cetera, et cetera. And and the big, I think, what really makes this kind of book worth doing is you've got to put on the table information that people didn't have before. Mm-hmm. and um,
0: That's not easy with a guy who is literally in the public eye and financial television is showing the thickness of his briefcase on the way to an FM, FOMC meeting as an indication of what might happen. It, he's that closely watched.
1: Yeah, but so you really have to go down every mouse hole and really hope you find something. And And sometimes you just get lucky. So, for example, I went to see the guy who operated Greenspan's computers when you know, like the technician, really? right, who was working for Greenspan's consulting company in the 1960s. Uh-huh. And I went there on the theory that this was a person who would have some color about the, the culture of Greenspan's little company. And so I show up, and um, it's in the middle of nowhere in the woods in Virginia. There's a clearing in the woods, a cabin, this guy living by himself. And I start talking with him, and it turns out he's an Ayn Rand follower. Uh-huh. And he was the person who, in his basement had this store of Greenspan's speeches when he was close to Ayn Rand. Come on. 300-page transcript on, it was called The Economics of a Free Society, Greenspan's Worldview, when he was 38 years old. So, you know, I didn't go there expecting to find it there, but I did. And you just have to go everywhere and hope you find stuff.
0: That That's amazing. So did this guy ever publish that, or did he allow you full access to it?
1: He gave me a full 300-page uh, printout of the whole thing, a photocopy, and, it would have um, taken
0: me five years to read 300 pages of Greenspan's <laughs> Ayn Rand speeches.
1: Now you get a feeling of why it does take a while to do wow. this, this work. You know, I went to see Pat Buchanan uh, on the theory that Buchanan was a, a Nixon Speech speechwriter. Writer, yep. yeah. And Greenspan had been involved in the same Nixon campaign, so I thought Pat Buchanan would tell me a few stories. It turns out he didn't just tell me stories... He also said, now, in my basement, you should come down and have a look. And in Pat Buchanan's basement, there's two things, right? There's a fantastic collection of antique firearms. Uh-huh. And there are all the memos that people wrote to Nixon in the 67-68 campaign, including Greenspan's memos.
0: So that doesn't go to a presidential Library, I would assume the law was that it has to be archived, or maybe that's a latter piece of legislation.
1: Well, I think that the campaign stuff may oh, not pre-election. be... pre-election. Yeah, right. So this is when Greenspan was in the war room mm-hmm. during Nixon's campaign. He begins by writing pure economic advice, then he starts to do political advice. He starts to analyze polls for Nixon. And then he does spin. I mean, he literally is telling Nixon, you know, you believe this but you shouldn't emphasize it too much because it won't go over well with the po- with, with the public. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, how about phrasing it this way?
0: That's fascinating. It uh, reveals
1: the political side of Alan Greenspan.
0: I, I, I need to get some more stuff in my basement. So in the description of the book, it says you have unlimited, you had unlimited access to Alan Greenspan. How, define unlimited access. Did you really spend that much time with him? And how forthcoming was he? about uh, the writing you were doing? Well,
1: I would go over to his office every week or two. I'd spend a couple of hours talking to him. After doing this for 70 hours, I stopped counting. Uh, I think for me it was research, and for him it was therapy. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was very open access. And, for example, one other document that nobody had been able to find before uh, was Alan Greenspan's PhD thesis, uh, and I heard about that. He gave it to me. Um, now, he gave it to me partly because I think, you know, I was asking him so many questions about his early intellectual development. And after a while, he kept on glancing up at a shelf. And I looked up there and I saw this big binder and I, I kind of, I figured he had it there. So he gave it to me. And, you know, that was fascinating because it, it was really about how the central bank must fight bubbles. So it's one of these enormous ironies. Wow, that's amazing.
0: Now, yeah. the, also famously, he never got his a PhD in economics. What? Why did he not complete his PhD thesis? Well,
1: what happened was actually that he began the PhD when he was young in the 1950s and never completed it then. He went into uh, business. He was a guy who grew up with not much money. He uh-huh. wanted to start making money. And so he did very well as a paid consultant in economics, and that was more attractive. But then uh, way later, in fact, when he was in his early 50s, He'd, by this time, been President Ford's chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. And his old friends at New York University said, um, you know, you should really get a PhD since you're an economist, and why don't you come back and take some classes? So he went back, took the classes, did the coursework, and they assembled a collection of papers that he'd written over the years. Mm -hmm. And then he he did get a PhD then.
0: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Sebastian Malaby. He is the author amongst... Other things, More Money Than God, uh, which won the Loeb Award in 2011. It was a New York Times bestseller. Let's talk a little bit about this book, um, which is really quite fascinating. First, I have to ask, explain from whence the title comes.
1: (laughs) Well, it's a bit of a funny one, but the um, uh, nickname for J.P. Morgan, the famous banker, Mm -hmm. was Jupiter. Jupiter. And I looked up how much money J.P. Morgan had when he died um, in an inflation-adjusted dollars, and it came to something like I think 1.3 billion. Is a piker. Exactly. I re- I realized that modern hedge fund managers in a single year occasionally make more money than Jupiter.
0: Jim Sam- Simons, Ray Dalio, they have two and three billion dollar years on a regular basis. Right.
1: Right. So I I went for the title. A lot of people hate the title. They say. No, that, I love the title. Okay. Good. I'm good. It
0: it. it because you know you're describing a very very distinct class of of asset managers who have been there's no other way to describe it wildly compensated and you know nothing is more expressive than than that phrase so so let's let's discuss this group a little bit explaining the most secretive subculture of our economy posed an irresistible investigative challenge Uh, You also say the common view of hedge funds seemed ripe for correction. So let's talk about both of those. What was the investigative challenge here, reviewing a variety of different hedge fund managers?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of aspects of the U.S. economy are very transparent. You can look stuff up on the Internet and so forth. Uh, Hedge fund managers are typically quite secretive. Mm -hmm. uh, And they don't want to talk about their methods because some of it is proprietary. And they just want to be discreet because they figure most public attention they get is negative. Right. Um, so persuading people to talk to me was quite a challenge. And it took me four years, but in the end, I did get a huge amount of access.
0: So, and let's talk about the second part of that statement. Common view of hedge funds seemed right for a correction. What do you think people misunderstand? What is the public perception that's that's erroneous?
1: Well, I think people view hedge funds as the wild west of finance, the people who take the most leverage, the most risk, and they're the craziest, and therefore, in some ways, the scariest. And and, and the
0: opposite is true, isn't
1: it? I, I think that what you can definitely say, although hedge funds do blow up, they do take risk, of course they do, whereas a lot of banks are too big to fail and taxpayers are on the hook, Hedge funds are small enough to fail, and they can mm-hmm. fail without getting any taxpayer help. And I think that's way more healthy for the system.
0: And, and in fact, hedge funds had nothing to do with the financial crisis of 8 They They were a participant, they were an actor, but they weren't the players who had completely leveraged up. And, and the few that crashed, namely the Bear Stearns one, the losses were limited to their own investors. It didn't become systemic.
1: Right. I mean, as we were discussing earlier, this Greenspan put uh, existed, and that encouraged too much risk. But I think that encouragement applied especially to the big banks that felt they were kind of inviolable. They felt they were so big, so powerful, that they could take all this risk and, and be okay. Hedge funds always knew that they were driving along rapidly in a rickety car that could just fall apart at <laughs> minute. So they, they were more careful.
0: I, I love that description. So you have access, so not, just like you had uh, wonderful access to Alan Greenspan, you, you received access to a number of legendary hedge fund managers. Who, who do you wish you could have gotten a, a um, conversation with that either was unavailable or unwilling to chat with you?
1: Well, you know, the first character in my book uh, is Alfred Winslow Jones, who started the Hedged Fund, Mm -hmm. as he called it in 1949. And, you know, he was a fascinating guy who, uh, in his early life, had fallen in love with a Marxist uh, beauty in in Berlin. And and he had himself uh, enrolled in the Marxist Workers' School, Uh uh, which is a funny place for the, you know, father of hyper capitalist hedge funds.
0: All all the best hedge fund managers go through the Marxist <laughs> at one point.
1: <laughs> anyway, he was dead by the time that I wrote the book. <laughs> so I had to go speak to his portfolio managers who told me stories, but I I never met
0: him. In my office there's an internal debate as to whether Winslow or Ed Thorpe was the first true quant. We we've been we've been arguing that um, internally. So we know hedge funds have been underperforming the past decade or so. Um, what What's your your take on that? Why do, why do we see hedge funds as a group underperforming?
1: You know, I think one point is that um, yields have been compressed. So mm-hmm. risky bonds are not paying you much more in interest than unrisky bonds. And that's a general point that if the expertise of a hedge fund is to finally manage risk and figure out you know which risk is mispriced, if all of these risks are priced very low, you're just not being compensated very much for that expertise anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one point. Another point is that in an environment of low returns overall, in in at least in fixed income, low yields, um, you know the two percent uh, and two and twenty fee structure. That's is taking, taking an, big nut. an insane bite right. out of the return to the final investor, and I think that's the second reason.
0: We, we've seen that compressed. We've seen you know 1.5 and 15 or one and 10. That's coming along. You know, I'm I'm reminded of um, Jim Chenos's comment. He said 30 years ago, when when he launched his hedge funds, Kinecos Partners, Kinecoast and Associates, there were a, a few hundred hedge funds, and they all created alpha. Now there's 11,000 hedge funds, and those same 200 hedge funds are the alpha generators. How much do we suspect the lack of performance is a function of a ton of entrance into the space, some of which probably shouldn't be in there?
1: I think there's some truth in that. Um, But I also think that, you know, the notion that there's a finite amount of alpha maybe understates the way that, you know, financial markets are being globalized, so there's new opportunities to trade. Uh-huh. Uh, frontier markets that didn't exist before. It may understate the way that there are new financial instruments being created, and you can trade those. There's also new kinds of data, and you know, all the kind of world of you know big data and online mm-hmm. intelligence that we're getting. So I think the world is constantly changing, creating new opportunities. So I don't put so much emphasis on the idea that there's a natural limit to how many hedge funds there ought to be.
0: That that that's quite quite interesting, and the other data point that I find so fascinating. Since 1997, hedge fund assets are up 25-fold and recently crossed the $3 trillion mark for the first time. So what, what does that tell us about this form of investing?
1: Well, I think it shows you that allocators, in other words, the professionals who work for university endowments or pension funds or what have you, Uh, recognize that the incentive structure in hedge funds uh, is attractive. So, you know, in a normal state of the world where returns are not being messed around by quantitative easing, you've got hedge funds which have a few characteristics. One is that the manager has his own money in the fund. Mm -hmm. So he's incentivized not to blow it up. So there's downside risk protection because it's, you know, some of his own money. The infamous skin in the game. Right. Second thing is that um, because he's being paid two and 20, he wants the 20, he wants to do the research necessary to drive a return quite high uh, because of that carry, the the profit share. Uh, uh, Then there's the freedom of action. There's the fact that you you can go long and short, you can use leverage, and that enables you to kind of combine those two things uh, in clever ways to target particular risks that you wanna take and then screen out other risks you don't wanna take. So I think there's a a bunch of freedoms and a bunch of incentives that come with the hedge fund structure that ought, in normal states of the world, to make for good returns.
0: So there's a famous quip that I tracked down the source, and I couldn't find the original source, but I did trace the first publication in The Economist, which, I'm paraphrasing, Hedge funds are a compensation scheme disguised as an asset class. You're familiar with that. I don't know if you know who originally penned that, but I definitely could go back no further than, I want to say, oh3 or o4 in The Economist. Uh, what, what's your take on that?
1: Um, I'm familiar with that phrase. Uh, it's a compensation scheme, not an asset class. I don't know where it came from originally. I think... Um, There's truth in that in the sense that there are so many different styles of hedge fund. One of the fascinations about writing my book was that you could explain to the reader what event-driven funds do, what long-short equity do, what statistical arbitrage funds do. There's all these different styles of Mm -hmm. macro trading and so forth. So there's no one style. So in that sense, it's not one asset class.
0: So of the various hedge fund managers you spoke with, and you spoke to a, a, a large number of them, who surprised you the most? Who, who, either in what they said or their personas, caused an arched eyebrow?
1: Well, I think the character of George Soros is fascinating. And I, I spoke to him, but more importantly, I spoke to a ton of people who worked for him. And that's often the best way when you're doing a book mm-hmm. to really get a view of a person is to speak to those who interacted and have an outside view. Uh, so you construct a sort of many perspectives on one person.
0: We have been speaking with Sebastian Malaby. He is the author of More Money Than God and more recently, The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. Uh, Be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things Greenspan and hedge funds. Uh, Be sure to check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments and feedback. Be sure and write to us at... M-I-B podcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. If you're having a business dispute, the process can be slow and drawn out, especially if you rely on litigation in the courts. You can wait for years before your case is resolved, and the longer your case proceeds, the more your case can cost. Not with the American Arbitration Association. Arbitration or mediation with the American Arbitration Association is faster. In fact, nearly 50% of our cases settle prior to hearings. ADR.org. Resolve faster. Welcome to the podcast, Sebastian. Thank you so much for for doing this. This has really been fascinating stuff. I know some of the Greenspan stuff is a little um, wonky for some people, but there is an audience for that that... Absolutely is going to eat that up, and my head of research, Mike Batnick, in the office loves more money than God. It's one of his favorite books. It it helps him on some research he's doing on a on another project. There's so many questions I didn't get to. I really want to um, before we get to our standard questions, I have to I have to come back back to. Let's start a little bit. We didn't really talk about your time at the Economist. You're working in London as a, as a journalist, as a writer. You're covering international finance. And then out of left field, you get assigned to South Africa. How, how does that happen?
1: <laughs> it was the other way around, actually. I went uh, first to South Africa, and then I came back. And From st- London. So you're yeah. working
0: in London. You end, was that where you were first started with The Economist?
1: I joined The Economist. I joined the foreign department, and they put mm-hmm. the new kid on the block, uh, to do Africa, because I guess it was the, the poorest part of the world, and so the youngest guy got it. And um, I, I did that a bit in London, and then I insisted on moving there, so I went to live in Zimbabwe. Oh, so
0: this this was your choice. This wasn't them saying, all right, send the kids to South Africa.
1: No, I wanted to go live there. I was sick of being in London after a couple of years and trying to follow Africa, but not being in Africa. So I, I said, okay, I actually quit, and they, they kind of persuaded me not to quit by by giving me the option of... Where did you want to go in Africa? Where do you want to live? So I picked Zimbabwe, Mm -hmm. uh, which was kind of next to South Africa, but not in it. At the time, with apartheid still being there, there were travel restrictions if you lived in South Africa. Oh, really? Um, And I figured also South Africa was was in a boring political phase where they were not going to release Mandela. Nothing was going to happen. And and of course, I was totally wrong. So as soon as I got to Zimbabwe, political change began in South Africa. And I wound up spending a lot of time living out of a suitcase, traveling around. And when Mandela came out of jail in 1990, there I was, 25 years old, outside, waiting for him to come out. And I knew my career would be downhill thereafter, (laughs) because nothing could be as exciting.
0: So a UK citizen living in Zimbabwe has greater travel freedom than a UK citizen living in South Africa? Was that the thinking?
1: Yeah, at the time, that was the case. Because if you had visa stamps from South Africa all over your passport, uh, and then you tried to go to another country like, I don't know, Tanzania, the Tanzanian government, as a kind of protest against apartheid, might give you a
0: hard time. Oh, that ma- that makes a lot of sense. So you're, you're, you're covering Nelson Mandela. What was that experience like? Did you get to interview him? How, how was your South African experiences?
1: The South African experience was amazing. It was an incredible time of political change. And I wrote a book called After Apartheid, which kind of laid down what I thought the future would be like after white minority rule ended. Uh, And I drew on a lot of my travels in the rest of Africa to try to understand how uh, post-white rule societies tended to develop. And all of that was just a great experience in my 20s to, to have that adventure.
0: Did you, did you ever get to interview Mandela?
1: I didn't interview Mandela, unfortunately.
0: That, that, and then from there, you end up getting assigned to Japan.
1: Yes. Well, I came back to London for a couple of years, and um, that's when I started to write about finance. And it was a total learning experience. I remember just asking questions, just going to see fund managers, traders, whoever would see me and say, you know, I've got some dumb questions, I'm sorry. And then I would just quizzed them and quizzed them and quizzed them until they threw me out of their offices because, you know, an hour had gone by. But by using the name of The Economist, I got into a lot of offices and I um, and I abused a lot of people's time to get my uh, sort of
0: education in finance. I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. I, I used the name Bloomberg to be able to sit with people like Sebastian Mallaby and talk about <laughs> stuff like this. So that had to be a culture shock. I'm thinking the UK, South Africa, Japan, if I ask someone, pick three of the most wildly disparate cultures and societies, I don't think you can find three more different societies around the planet than those three. Right. And going to
1: Japan in the early 90s was fascinating because that was a time when people still believed that the Japanese economic model might be superior to the Western
0: one. The Japanese miracle, absolutely.
1: And although the market had crashed in 1990... It took a bit of, you know, it's like one of those cartoon characters that runs off the edge of the cliff. Right. And then keeps running and doesn't actually fall. Till he looks down and notices it. Exactly. And so we were in that moment when Japan was kind of off the edge of the cliff, but still levitating somehow. And some people believed that it would be able to scoot right back onto terra firma Uh um, and not fall. And so there was a fascinating debate about the nature of capitalism, which model worked best, and so forth. And uh, and so that was a great education.
0: I know I'm mispronouncing this. Kiritsu is the Japanese model of you, you're you stacking all these different industries in one vertically integrated company. My favorite example, Mitsubishi Bank of Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, Mitsubishi Real Estate, Mitsubishi Aviation. They, they were building these giant companies, made it challenging for Japan to allow their banks to, to go into bankruptcy. It's a whole house of cards on top of it.
1: Yes, and I think what's fascinating, though, is that the Keiretsu system in Japan is sort of cross-shareholdings, banks lending on the basis of a relationship. Mm-hmm. It's not arm's-length stock market capitalism where people are trading bits of paper, securities, uh, without having much direct contact with the companies or the entities that issued those securities. So it's a much more kind of hands-on um, people said long-termist version of capitalism. And when Japan collapsed, people thought, oh, well, that's obviously not a good model. But if you you substituted the word Japan and you said instead Northern California, Mm -hmm. and you think about the way that venture capital has been so important in the technology stuff, what is venture capital? It's long-termist. It is direct um, provision of capital to companies. Uh, It is not about trading secondary claims in markets. And it's been fabulously successful.
0: Yeah, but you those are new technologies and, and small startups. In Japan, it's almost dynastic in terms of these giant entities, these giant conglomerates, including many of the biggest companies uh, in Japan and in the world. It, it's a fascinating comparison. Um, I think it works better with small companies than it does with the, the big conglomerates.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good insight. And I think that... Um, you know, I'm not ready to say that markets and financial trading are a bad thing. I mean, I read about hedge funds, and I believe that they're often a good thing. Um, But it is interesting the way that venture capital is finance, but without finance. I mean, people don't use mathematical models. It's very much based on Looking at the entrepreneur in the eyes and saying, does this person have the stuff it takes to set up a company and make it work? So it's a very different kind of provision of capital that you get in Silicon Valley, and it clearly has worked.
0: Not to say the least. So, so we covered um, South Africa. You were in Japan for how many years? years. Three years. Did you learn Japanese? I or? did. Yeah, yeah. Are you still fluent, or or does no, that fade I mean, very rapidly? Uh, after I left
1: uh, Japan uh, in 1996, that whole world kind of fell off
0: my mental map. Have you been back since? I haven't. It's terrible. I should go back. It, it it's one of the places on my list. It looks like an absolutely fascinating country. That that is truly so different from from my experiences. It looks utterly fascinating. Let's talk about something a little closer to home um the uk and and brexit you know to an outside observer britain looks spectacularly calm considering there's a whole bunch of uh big economic changes coming their way what what's your take on this i know you've written about it for the washington post in fact brexit britain seems shockingly calm is your your headline so what is going on in in great britain
1: well, I think the main thing that happened is that I had assumed and most people assumed that if the Brexit vote succeeded, everybody would be terrified that the uncertainty of leaving Europe would cause consumers to quit spending. And in fact, consumers did the opposite. They went out and borrowed. Household uh, debt ratios have actually you know, risen. Mm-hmm. And so people just refused to be scared. And I think that it's kind of a behavioral insight that when there's a political development that's very complex and it seems to be, you know, yak, 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 all those politicians talking to each other. The average person just kind of zones it out and, uh-huh. and goes off on a spending spree, just ignoring what's coming down the pike. And I think when the reality of Brexit hits and you suddenly find that, you know, your company cannot export without a customs check or that you yourself cannot travel and work in Spain or whatever, um, I think when the reality hits, then consumers will Start to rein in their spending, and then we'll see the cost of Brexit.
0: The, the expectation is, if if a Brexit goes through the way it's reasonably expected to go through, meaning all the things we're referencing actually occur, this is a pretty big hit to to GDP, isn't it?
1: Yes, I mean you know Britain joined the European Union in 1973, so it's been a long time. Uh, of progressive integration into those markets. 43% of British exports go to the rest of the European Union. So losing full market access in those economies is a big deal.
0: And it's arguable that the, the Great Britain had the best of both worlds. They were a full member, but they still had their own currency. What, I'm perplexed as to why they would want to exit a situation that's so advantageous to them.
1: Well, I'm perplexed too. And I, you know, I helped to set up a, a website uh, that did fact checking um, to point out the lies, frankly, of the side that wanted to get out. Um, Wait, you
0: uh, don't you don't think we're going to get the UK is going to see 400 million pounds a, a week? To, for the National Institute of Health, that's not going to happen.
1: This is one of those myths, right, that they put out there. On the side kind of, of a bus. That they are right, the post truth campaign style. <laughs> um, we tried to say that truth mattered. Um, unfortunately, not enough people listened to us. It, I mean, when you look at the opinion polls and you say, well, why did people vote for exit? The first thing was a sort of nebulous belief that you'd get sovereignty back. Well, what does sovereignty mean? We live in a globalized world, we are dependent on what happens in other countries, it's bound to affect us. And so I think that's a, a chimera.
0: What about the control of borders? We we have an open border policy we want to control. We want to keep bad elements out.
1: Yes. So that is a politically potent line, both here in the United States, as we've seen, and in, and in Britain. Um, and, you know, if you really, really, really want to keep foreigners out, I guess that's your choice. And people can vote like that. But, of course... Economically, uh, migrants are positive, very positive. Mm-hmm. And I would say even culturally, you know, the diversity that you have in London, a very melting pot kind of city. You walk on the street, you get in the subway, people are speaking French, Arabic, whatever. I, I like that.
0: And plus, the food is so much better. Between, <laughs> That's true. Between the pizza, the Indian food, and the sushi… London is now a city you can actually enjoy a meal, and that wasn't necessarily true 30 years ago.
1: Yeah, I left London to go live in Japan in 1992, and it was not with that much regret. <laughs> but when I came back to live there in 2014, it, it's a fantastic place.
0: It, it's completely changed, and it's it's far more international and cosmopolitan. Um, you would always oh you would have always assumed that about London, given the history of of the UK, but that really wasn't necessarily the case for a long time. And now you're a U.K. resident or a U.S. resident?
1: I now have this funny uh, split existence. My wife annoyingly got promoted so much that uh, uh, she has a great job in London, uh, editor-in-chief of The Economist magazine. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we live in London uh, for that very good reason. But my writing and my professional interests are mostly in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So I'm here kind of half the time and in London half the time. New York or D.C.? Yeah, A bit of both.
0: All right, uh, because I keep hearing the phrase nylon. Which is the New York London um, um, swap? Let's um. All right, so let's leave the Economist behind. But the the only other thing I have to ask, since you're in London so often, I, I have to ask you about um, Europe. H- how much trouble is Europe in? Are are we overstating the the damage here? We look at the banks in Europe; they're selling for half a book. In the U.S., it's one to two times book. How much trouble is Europe? really in going forward, or will they be able to resolve everything?
1: I think that the Eurozone um, is still a disaster waiting to happen. Really? There's huge amounts of debt, uh, and they still haven't gotten to a position where, although growth has picked up a little bit, uh, even nominal growth um, is uh, lower than the deficit in some of these countries. So public borrowing is adding to the debt, And And we're talking
0: Southern Europe. Yeah, you know, I mean,
1: Greece is the obvious one. Spain is true. Italy. Italy. I think Italy more than Spain. But, you know, I I do think those countries have a fundamental problem, which is that they are locked into a monetary policy that is partly designed to suit Germany. And um,
0: well, it certainly has helped Germany um, over the past few decades.
1: Right. And I think that. There is no obvious – if you just think about the debt sustainability dynamics in a place like Italy with negative demographics, I'm not sure how they're going to stabilize that.
0: And I would be remiss if I did not ask you. I've been reading about the increasing chatter that, hey, maybe when everybody figures out how expensive it's going to be for the UK to actually exit – Um, the EU and maybe Scotland reconsiders their vote and is there any realistic possibility that they suddenly um, get religion and decide to stay in the EU with some some minor accommodations or is that just a pipe dream?
1: It's a pipe dream. If you look at the political lineup in Britain right now, uh, you have a Labour Party opposition which is in total disarray with a very left-wing leader who's extremely uncharismatic, so it's not going to come from him. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you've got a bunch of regional parties, um, including mostly the Scottish National Party that would like to stay in Europe, but they're regional, they're not going to, you know, have much influence in in the heart of Britain, which is England. And then you're left with the governing Conservative Party, and uh, Theresa May is a sort of rather dogged, not terribly imaginative or flexible leader, And she is doggedly proceeding towards leaving the European Union, and she's not going to be put off.
0: Quite fascinating. Uh, There's a ton of questions that I still want to get to, but I have to get to my favorite questions um, that I ask all of my guests uh, in the remaining 15, 20 minutes we have. Before I hit those questions, there's, there's one other comment I had to ask you about. So your father was the United Kingdom ambassador to Germany and later an ambassador to France uh, that's a fascinating um, background did you spend a lot of time growing up in Germany or France what was what how did that impact um, your childhood?
1: Well, when I was a kid, there were two countries where I remember going on vacation from boarding school or even living there. In fact, one was New York. Mm -hmm. Um, My dad was in New York when I was between the age of seven and 10. So I was a Central Park baseball playing, gum chewing kid. Um, you can tell by my accent that it really stuck a lot. No, <laughs> and Me other, too.
0: You can't, you can't tell where I'm from by my accent at all. It's, it's, I do such a good job hiding it.
1: I know you grew up in London. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the other thing that happened was that we then moved from New York to, to Russia, to Moscow. Oh, really? Uh, and so I have these weird memories of communist Russia.
0: And so when, when was your father ambassador to Germany? Was that uh, before your time or...? or after you're already out of the household?
1: By that point, I was um, the economist correspondent in Africa. I remember a funny experience, actually, um, sitting with a bunch of reporters in Namibia, mm-hmm. right next to next to South Africa, which was having a sort of historic election of independence. Uh, and every single senior Africa reporter in the world had come to Namibia, and they were looking forward to getting on the front page the next day. And on the front page the next day, all there was was the collapse of the Berlin Wall. And so Malaby Sr., in other words, my dad, who was ambassador in Germany, was in the middle of the biggest story in the world of a generation. And Malaby Jr., that's me, was off in Namibia, and I'm afraid we were on page 17.
0: Oh, that's very, very uh, funny. So so let's um, let's jump into our, our favorite questions. Um, so did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Was that something... Uh, that that was in your future, or or how did that come about?
1: Actually, I was asked when I was at high school, around the age of 16, to fill in some questionnaire saying, what would I like to do in the future? And I wrote journalism and writing. So, oh, so you've known a long I've time. I've known. It's, something, it's a combination of being fascinated with the craftsmanship of the written word. I actually mm-hmm. like fiddling around with semicolons and sentences and, and language. I just love language. Um Maybe that comes from having a French mother uh, and having grown up with a couple of languages in the house and then learning German and other languages later. So I've loved language, but I also love discovery. I love going out, talking to people, figuring out what makes them tick, what their ideas are. And so that whole world of understanding, making sense of current events uh, has been my passion. F-
0: sounds, sounds quite fascinating. Let's talk about some of your early mentors who, who guided your career Uh, When you were younger?
1: Well, when I joined The Economist magazine right out of college, um, first as a sort of temporary intern position, and then they kept me, um, there were several uh, older journalists who were really terrific in terms of helping me to learn how to write, how not to waste the reader's time by really getting to the point quickly. Um, I remember one exercise uh, where. um, you know, I was terrified when I first joined The Economist. And I didn't know if I could write stories that they would actually use. So I would, I would stay late and write a draft and give myself basically a full morning the next day to crunch this small piece into an even smaller space by taking out every piece of fat in the prose. And I would spend four or five hours just taking out redundant words. So if I said, in spite of, I would say, aha, if I change that to despite, I can cut it from three words to one word, so this obsessive uh, polishing of language was something I learned from my colleagues at The Economist.
0: So, so was the man who knew originally eighteen hundred words, and now it's down to six hundred and forty. Or how did that history affect your writing a book like this?
1: So you're talking pages there, not words. But yes, yes. <laughs> did I say words? Pages. Yes, this was originally.
0: So this is six hundred and forty pages. Uh, how how large was this? Because it's a giant topic, and you covered decades in the book.
1: I did cut out 200 pages.
0: Really? Is that painful? Because I know it's the worst thing in the world to have to excise your, your precious words.
1: You see, the funny thing about me is it's not painful. I actually love sitting there with pages of prose and figuring out how to make it more beautiful by cutting out the ugly
0: bits. Less is more, Yeah, to, to say the least. Let, let's talk about writers who may have influenced you. Who... Who do you admire? What writing or writers affected your approach and your style?
1: Well, I love reading, and I'm a bit of a slow reader because I'm always trying to learn from the book, both about the style and about the content. I mean, Roger Lowenstein is somebody who, when I started to write about hedge funds, you know, I read both his Warren Buffett biography uh-huh. uh, and I read When Genius Failed. I thought those were both fantastic books about and, finance. And he
0: gave you a delightful blurb for the man who knew
1: he's been good about that yeah I mean, so i've i and getting a blurb from some writer that you really admire sure uh, it's fantastic
0: sure and um so so who else anybody else influence your approach by the way for those of you who haven't read when genius failed it it may be one of the all-time great financial narratives it's just a, a wonderful a fascinating tale wonderfully told
1: a long time ago, um, Joe uh, the who became editor of the New York Times, mm-hmm. uh, wrote a book called Move Your Shadow. And this was based on his experience as the South Africa correspondent. And that was a model of taking a mixture of history, analysis, but also personal experience, mm-hmm. you know, describing himself in South Africa and putting himself into the book. And I thought that the kind of the range of... Um, voices he could blend was a lesson in how, when you write a book, you gotta change gears, right? You you shouldn't just write in the same voice and at the same pace all the time. You gotta have passages of analysis that you switch up with passages of narrative. Sometimes you cover three years in three paragraphs. Other times you have 30 pages about one day. It's that, you know, if you think about making a movie, sometimes you use a wide angle lens. Sure. Other times, it's a telephoto. you got to think like that with a book, too.
0: Various variety and structure, and that's what ultimately impacts what the final book looks like. So so let's talk about books. What What are some of your favorite books, be they finance or non-finance, fiction or non-finance, non-fiction? You said you like to read. Tell me what you're reading now, and what have you enjoyed in the past?
1: Actually, I've, I've become interested recently in Silicon Valley, and I read just now a book by David Horowitz who is the co-founder with um, Mark Andreessen of mm-hmm. Andreessen Horrors. And what's striking about that book is how he ex- describes the experience of being a an entrepreneur, setting up um, companies, the sheer terror, when you think you're going to go bankrupt and you're going to lose all your investors' money and all your friends who have sweated blood working late, working weekends for you, um, you might have to lay them off. And the kind of... The, you know, the visceral experience of being an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley is something that came across to me very vividly reading David Horowitz's books called um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. It's pretty good.
0: Uh, anything else? What else What else stands out to you?
1: Let's see. I read recently a, a slightly offbeat book by the Austrian writer Stefan Zweig. Um, I think it's called "The The World of Yesterday. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially about how cosmopolitan uh, Europe of 1900 descended into the nightmare of Nazism. And of course, it's a book which today has a certain resonance as you see these political trends uh, appear to threaten globalization. And this is about the unraveling of that early globalization of the 19th century.
0: That seems to be a narrower slice than what uh, Likwad Ahmed wrote about in Lords of Finance, He's another person who gave you a fantastic blurb. Yes, I mean
1: and Ahmed is a fantastic writer, and
0: that was a wonderful, wonderful book. Wonderful,
1: uh- wonderful. I totally agree. Um, you know, brilliantly combining um, substantive economic explanation with the color of the Zeitgeist. You know, the feeling of um, what that Belle Époque was like in the nineteen twenties. You know, there's a there's a little vignette there, I think, of um, some French socialite. Uh, arriving furious with a French statesman and shooting him with a pistol that was disguised in her fur scarf mm-hmm. wrapped around the gun. I mean, it's just amazing, in sort of evocative writing.
0: And, and the concept of telling the story of, of uh, the post-war era through four central bankers, uh, I just thought it was a brilliant conception and, and so well executed. But before we leave books, any other any other books you want to uh, reference? Anything? What are you reading right now? So I just got
1: done with this David Horowitz Silicon Valley book. I'm a bit of a Silicon Valley kick, and um, I'm going to uh, read uh, you know one of the the famous venture capitalists is is William Draper. Mm-hmm. He's written a memoir about uh, his time in the Valley. Uh, so I'm really trying to understand uh, that very dynamic section of the American economy? And, and what was the role of finance in that?
0: Have you read The New New Thing, Michael Lewis? Of
1: course, I've read The New New Thing. It's a, an amazing book. Michael Lewis is the ultimate storyteller, and I have enormous respect for his craft.
0: Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that that book as well. Um, so we're down to our last two questions. And, and let me put both of these to you. The first question is, so someone who just graduates college or a millennial comes to you and says, I'm thinking about becoming a writer or a journalist, what sort of adv- career advice might you give them?
1: I would say, don't do it. <laughs> um, and then I would be secretly pleased if they ignored my advice. So I think you have to, if you're going to be a writer or a journalist, you have to really, really, really want to do it because it's mm-hmm. not the most compensate, best compensated uh, form of, of activity Um And, you know, sometimes if you write a book, it's lonely. You're stuck there for a long period by yourself. You have to really like it. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of things you can do in life which are more, uh, you know, better paid for that amount of, you know, given a certain amount of education and skill. You can certainly make more money elsewhere. So you have to really want to do it. But if you do really want to do it, then I think it's a wonderful way to spend your life because you're out there understanding things Uh, going off, speaking to people, making discoveries.
0: And our final question, what is it that you know today about writing and journalism that you wish you knew 25 years ago when you were first starting out?
1: I think the main thing is that there's no substitute for discovering new stuff, that investigation really, really matters. Because if you're just taking what is generally known already and putting your own spin on it, then there's, you know hundred other guys also doing that, Mm -hmm. and it's not distinctive. You've got to go find. So I think I wish the profession as a whole had more resources to put into investigative reporting.
0: Well, we're starting to see things like ProPublica and other forms of privately supported nonprofit um, support for that. But uh, at one point in time, it was a thriving business, that seems to be under assault by both the internet and and alternative facts, apparently.
1: It's too bad that, you know, it's, it's happening that way. I have, um, in my Greenspan research, I had some young researchers who helped me, and they went and did the work in the archives. And, you know, one of them called John Hill was such an amazing researcher that I thought he would— Immediately be snapped up by um, a news organisation after he moved on, and he he did work at the Economist a bit, but you know, he's telling me that finding a job as an investigative reporter, even though he is the best investigator I've ever met, is tough.
0: Wow, that that's amazing. We thank you so much for being so generous with your your time, Sebastian. We have been speaking with Sebastian Malaby. He is the author of The Man Who Knew and More Money Than God. He is also um, a, a Paul Volcker uh, scholar at the Council on Foreign Relations. If people want to find uh, your work, I know they can access not just the books, but you, you still contribute to the Washington Post. I do. And any place else they can find your writings?
1: Well, there's always a good collection on the Council on Foreign Relations website, cfr.org. But yeah. Um, you know, Google is normally the answer to these
0: questions these days. Google is always the answer. Uh, if you have enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch at any of the other 125 or so such conversations uh, we've had in the past. Um, I would be remiss if I did not thank my recording engineer, Medina. Uh, Taylor Riggs is my booker, and Michael Batnick is our head of research. We love your feedback comments, and suggestions, be sure to write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org.